Established in 2002, Hotwire Coffee is located in a charming 1910 building in the heart of West Seattle, offering unique coffee drinks using locally roasted seven coffee roasters, high quality teas from B. Fuller's, Motor, and Pestle, and locally made burritos from El Bujo. Locally owned, community operated, laid back ambiance, covered patio with seating and dog friendly. Use the code Dr. and the DJ and get 20% off any sized espresso beverage. Hello, this is Dr. Amy Lindsay, and I'm here to remind you that the information in this podcast is not medical or other professional advice. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. You should not rely on anything you hear as a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional who is familiar with your personal situation. Listening to this podcast may, however, give you a sense of belonging, make you spit take your coffee, realize that DJs can do more than play music, uplift you during a shit day, teach you that sometimes doctors swear too much, or remind you that you are not alone. Do you remember the Zune player, Amy? <laughs> do you remember that thing? I only remember it because we have a picture of you holding one. Okay. And you didn't own a Zune. I owned a Zune. I had I that did, Zune. I did not own a Zune. Yeah, Zune. So I've never the, really been like an early adopter with mm, technology. Oh, I was early on the Zune, Amy. I was probably one of the most early humans to have the Zune. If you're not familiar, um, I also was on MySpace and Friendster too. So just going back. <laughs> I usually years. wait for the 2.0. Yeah. I wait for them no, to fix the first I, I, bugs. I, I think Zune didn't quite, maybe didn't. <laughs> Zune didn't have a 2.0. They made it to 2.0 and then 2.5. Well, maybe why don't you have. tell us what a Zune is? Well, I think. the Zune was a uh, little portable music player and it was really neat. It played music, you know, like an iPod. Remember those? Mm-hmm. You know, the iPod. I do remember an iPod. And then Microsoft was like, we got to get on this. And they just, they made a Zune. So, um, one day I got a call and they wanted me to host the launch of the Zune, which of course, who wouldn't want to be associated w- with the Zune? So I, I said, yes, uh, it, it was a big event down at Westlake Center. Uh, if you're not familiar, downtown Seattle, big open area in the middle of downtown. Big mall open area. Yep. Uh, they booked a band called Secret Machines, who were awesome, actually. Um, featured uh, the fellow who was also in um, School of Seven Bells who passed away. A uh, really nice guy. Um, but Secret Machines played. So I was excited. I loved that band. And then I think they'd never heard him before. They just liked the name Secret Machines. So whatever. It works. Great band. So I said, okay, I'll go down there. Say, well, okay, well, you'll be introducing Bill Gates. Mm. I was like, oh, okay. You know, the Microsoft, the Zune makes sense. Sure. Okay, I'll introduce Bill Gates and we'll introduce the Zune to a an unknowing public who may not be prepared for this technology. So go down there to host, you know, and um, they're like, you'd like to, we're going to have you hang out with Bill uh, beforehand. I'm like, of course, sure. I'd love to hang out with the richest man in the world. That sounds like a plan. So uh, I get ushered in from a lot of security around the old Bill Gates when you got that much money. Um, so I go into the little trailer. It's Bill Gates. His what hand- year was this? Fuck, man. I don't know. hundred years ago. <laughs> and so I'm in this trailer in Westlake Center. With Bill Gates and his handler. Very nice person. And I met Bill, and, and, and now it's, well, we're waiting. We're in the green room. There's no, I don't know when this thing starts. The green so room I, trailer. So I'm trying to make small talk with Bill Gates, okay? So what did you say? Uh, I don't know. I was just was thinking. small talk? How's well, the weather? Yeah, hey. Yeah, hey. Seen any cool things on your computer lately? I don't know. I didn't have anything. <laughs> did you ask him about his, uh, the wall of the periodic table? No, I, he has I, an actual periodic table in his house. Does he? Uh-huh. Huh. 
It would have been good to know ahead of time, Amy. So we had a plan for the Zoom launch. He says, okay. And so we each had a Zoom player. I'd gotten one the day before. And they said, what we want you to do is you could trade songs with it. That's That was the cool thing about the Zoom. If you put them up next to each other, they like have sex and then the other one gets the song. They do it. They, they just, high they, five. They, they do the Zoom, which is a... a it's a new sex it's move. It's a sex move. Yeah. Called the Zoom. So try it. It's great. Um, so I'm sitting with Bill and, and he says out loud, well, how... How does that work? I was like, oh, this isn't good. Oh, God. He doesn't know how the Zoom works. No, I didn't really know how the music, tra- I'm not getting down okay, on Bill. hang on I, a second. I, Bill Gates didn't know how the Zoom, it's fine. Like, he probably didn't develop it. He didn't develop it. God bless him. I'm not throwing Bill Gates under the trailer. I'm just saying he didn't know how the, quite how the music went from one to the other. Just like he how. He didn't know how to do the Zoom. Yeah, he knew that worked. He, he understood that. But to do the Zoom position, he did not know. So I said, Okay, well, so let me, did you zoom Bill yeah, Gates? Yeah, I yeah, I zoomed Bill Gates. Yeah, that's the end of the story. No, I I said, "Yeah, yeah, Bill, um you just do this and you set them next to each other and then the song." And he's like, "Well, what what song should we give to each other?" And I and so I'm looking at it and I've been given like a very limited library here. I said, "I, I say we go with Love Shack from the B52s, Bill." <laughs> he says, "Oh. Yeah, something like that's fun." I was like, "Yeah, B52s Love Shack. Great." And it really hits me just how weird my life is all the time. But at that particular moment in history, I wanted everyone I know to be there because it's just so stupid, the whole situation. Anyway, You're doing the Zoom so with we, Bill Gates yeah, with the b 52 Yeah, so that's the deal. And then we went out on the stage and we, and I, you know, hey, Bill, and he's like, you know, in his, bla- like his um, little windbreaker. And I'm he's dre- wearing a windbreaker. Yeah, he's like a windbreaker, short hair, you know, Bill Gates. And then I'm just an asshole. I still have my long hair, I think, and it's kind of long, shaggy, and I'm dressed like an idiot. And so I'm up there with him. It's just like it's like a before and after picture, like adulthood, <laughs> teenager. So, so and I wasn't. I was an adult. So anyway, um, we go up on stage. Secret machines are waiting to play. I'm up there in front of the press and the, the tons of people. We we make love shack to each other and <laughs> and then bill talks and he was great and couldn't have been nicer by the way let me just make that clear he was a very nice fella and then it ended okay so then the next day i get the seattle times and on the cover of the seattle times is john richards holding up a zoom next to bill gates and i say out loud to no one when this fucking thing fails that picture is going to be back on the front page of the seattle times Fast forward a few years, that fucking picture was on the front page of the Seattle Times. Hey, 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 it's the doctor and the DJ, doctor and the DJ. Hey, 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 it's the doctor and the DJ, doctor and the DJ. Today on the Doctor and the DJ podcast, we talk to Jody Milstein. You can find her under Rockstar Therapy. She's a marriage and family therapist. She has been in the music scene for years and then decided to get into therapy and uh, helps artists and creatives out there get through this life of ours. We'll also be talking about dealing with haters and I'll talk about being dragged through the mud. Dr. Amy tells us perfectionism is the death of action and how we can take chances on ourselves. We also will be featuring one of my favorite bands right now and my current favorite song will end this podcast. The band is New York's Nation of Language.
So, Amy, I between the times that was on the front page of the Times and um, and and the second time, it goes back to that earlier podcast where we talked about being in the newspaper. I'm telling you, you buy some cred, you get on the front page with Bill Gates. I was like, I go to this Indian restaurant down in Ballard, I was living there at the time. That guy didn't know me for anyone. I walked in there, he goes, Mike! John, my customer, I love you. You know, it was free dinner. And he's like, oh, I kept a copy. Like, I wouldn't have a copy. He, oh, I kept it for you. I was like, oh, thanks, man. Oh, that's the thing. Yeah, everyone clips it out of the paper yeah, yeah, and gives yeah. you so the copy. Yeah, he saved yeah. it for me, right? So it was, yeah. he was very excited. Then I went to a, a pizza place here in town. And Joe, the manager, he used to manage uh, this other place I used to work at, this chicken restaurant I uh, worked at here at, uh, in Seattle for years. And uh, I was his dishwasher slash cutting chickens up. That's one of the reasons I'm vegan. You cut enough chickens in half, you, you become vegan. It's a rule. So anyway, Joe walks over. He's like, Oh, John, man, you've really made it. It's like, fuck man. I've been on the radio for a few years now, fella. <laughs> but you know, it was very nice anyway. So there was that. Right. And then I don't, that wasn't like the first time I was in a paper or something, but there, you know, this one, I, the, the, the weekly, which uh, just sadly went under. I was so sad to see that. You were not. I was not. Um, they weren't always nice to me, but they put me on the cover of the, of the, of the weekly and it, and, and wherever you're listening in your town, most cities have a, you know, free weekly, you know, so they put them in the little boxes all over the place. And so I didn't know I was going to be on the cover. They're doing the thing on music and what I do on my show. So that was everywhere I went. I, at one point I was going across the, the street with my kid and, um, I'm standing there at the stop sign. I look down and there's two of those stupid boxes and my face is staring back at me on both of those. And then I see someone staring at him too. And then looks at me and looks down and looks at me. And I'm like, and I just look at him. I go, yeah, yep. And it was like a, it was like, I was just like, I was in the witness protection program and the mobster just found me. Hey, that's you. So here's what happens though. You have to fight real hard not to let that go to your head and put yourself out there. Right. So I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm everywhere. This keeps happening. And there was all this stuff and all this positive press for everything. And I was feeling pretty good about myself. I was relying on that to pump me up. I won all these awards. It was like in that same paper and other places like best DJ in Seattle and best morning show. It's just like, oh, wow. You know, and you start to really, really like have your identity because other people accepted you or said you were good. Right. Then later, the other paper here in town which will not be named on this podcast, decided, yeah, we don't like that guy. And uh, I was I just, just just destroyed in there. I mean, just destroyed. Every part of my life was basically in that paper. And, and, and I found out later, by the way, one of the main writers, I may have mentioned this before, was an alcoholic, uh, came back later and apologized because they were Did really- one of the steps with you? One of the steps over email. You were like, motherfucker. I was like, oh, really? You, you dragged yeah. me through the newspaper, you fucking asshole. Yeah, because you, and I said, why? I just asked a question, <laughs> why? And I asked another writer this too, who was pretty, pretty not nice to me. They said, because everybody loved you. Because, because you, people were you propping you up. down. Yeah, they were like that. So I went after you. Oh, I could, I, yeah, I know that sounds naive. That sounds really naive for me to say. I couldn't believe it. I still though- have a hard time believing it. And I guess what I'm trying to talk about is, is haters or um, bad feedback, let's <laughs> put it lightly. So it, it nearly destroyed me. So I, you know, I deal with depression. It put me in, at that time, um, the, the most depressed I'd been was when I dropped out of high school and I was, it was near, you know, we talked about this near suicidal, right? But this is as, as down as I got. I was so fucked up. It, it so messed me up. It, I questioned everything I was doing. I shouldn't be on the air. I'm a fraud. It just fulfilled every scary thing I've ever told myself or that other people have told me. And then people piled on because, you know, 
now the guy's down for the count and they it's like a doe i was out there and you know the predators were looking for me and so it just went on for it went on for a long time i remember that it was bad um it was really bad and i i remember being in a parking lot um kind of close to westlake when i read the uh, an article about me and in a lot of it wasn't true and it was just weird to, to read and i broke down crying i remember this clear as day that i was sitting in a parkade parking lot under the in the basement and i just sat on the front of my car and i stuck my head in my hands i just started weeping i was like i can't do this anymore i have to quit i can't they got me i just can't do that i can't i can't put myself out there and be and be told how what a piece of shit i am and i don't even know why i don't even know why i'm a piece of shit. i couldn't even couldn't even quite make out what it was and all the people because I do the morning show on KXP a little differently than most morning shows. I'm, I'm different on the air. I'm not your normal morning show host. So I get a lot of people not happy with what I do. It's just, it, a lot of people. See what I already did there? It's 1% of the listeners, if that, right? And 99% of them are amazing, love the show, think, think it's just like, just amazing. And, and what do I do? What do I do? What do, I, what do most of us do over here? Okay, but can I interrupt? Yes. So I want to cut to the chase here. Okay. Positive or negative, it actually doesn't fucking matter what a single other person thinks about you or anyone listening to this podcast. Mm -hmm. It actually doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. And that basing our value on other people's opinions of us is where we immediately can get lost and lose ourselves. The only person's opinion that matters is your own. And... This is really, really true. Really, really true. And, you know, we said this before that, you know, you don't take criticism from someone you wouldn't take advice from. But even so, you know, if you go to somebody you trust and that you would take advice from and you're looking for feedback or you're looking for support, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. That's awesome. You should do that. Trust your friends. But it actually doesn't matter because at the end of the day, you have yourself to answer to. Mm-hmm. And... It actually doesn't matter one zero point zero 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 zero. you know, what a single other motherfucker out there thinks of you, good or bad. And I want to make it clear, that's where I'm at now. I'm not, I don't need people writing me, telling me, hey, you're doing a good job. And they do, and it's nice. But I'm with you. It, yeah, you don't it, need the approval. No, no, no. I'm good. No, I'm good. but it's it's good to be in a good thing just, with a, with a group of people and yeah. in a community and all support each other. Right, that's, like, that's great. When I was going to open the bar, when when you and I were opening the bar, what I got from a lot of people were like, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. Like, what are you doing? You don't know anything about that. I mean, and that wasn't like you can't do it. It's just this kind of shitty kind of yeah, you don't know what you're doing kind of kind of vibe. And and I I didn't listen to any of them because luckily, what I'm trying to say is, look, I wasted a lot of years, a lot of time I wish I could have back thinking I was doing a bad job. I'm a bad person and I'm doing this show wrong, but I'm going to keep doing it this way. But I'm going to feel shitty about it every day to the point of massive, like debilitating depression. I wish I knew then. it's like a face of song. I wish I knew now what I knew or I know then what I know now. And I agree with you, Amy. I, I just, I, if we can give any bit of advice to you, to your children, to pass on, it's if, can you imagine a life from the go where people rejecting you, people telling you you suck, people telling you that, that what you've created sucks, you shouldn't do that, whatever. Those voices in your head then that then tell you it, so it just feeds on it, right? If you could fix that, that is a superpower. Right. Can I also just say we 
put way too much weight on, we were talking about this last time, we put too much weight on what we think other people think of us. Mm -hmm. And and then the real truth of it, they're not giving us that much airtime. Nobody is actually thinking about us as much as we think they're thinking about us. And we're the ones sitting there ruminating, thinking people are thinking about us. And what everybody is thinking about is what everyone is thinking about them. And they're ruminating, thinking, I'm thinking the thing. Are, are you getting, Are you following me here? Yeah, I am, because you just <laughs> triggered something in me. I, th- uh, they're not is, giving it that okay, much Okay, this is time. embarrassing. This is embarrassing, but I, I, whatever. Nobody gives a shit. I know. This is, this is an embarrassing thing, but maybe embarrassing is the wrong word. But when I was in the height of that, I would go for walks or whatever, and I'd be in Ballard. I'd be sorry. And you know what I was thinking? I would see people talking, and I would think they're talking about me. And they didn't even see me. They didn't even see me. They didn't recognize me. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Whatever. But I was so sure everyone in Seattle hated me or were talking about it. It took me a little while to figure out then some therapy. That isn't true. And now it seems batshit crazy to me that I, that I was walking around thinking everyone was But that's so, such a lesson. Nobody was doing that. Maybe one person was. But you're right. They're not walking around talking about you. They're not, they don't, it's a quick burst of like, yeah, yeah, you suck or whatever, even those people. And it, it, most people are actually more concerned about what other people are thinking of them. That's the ironic thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're not, they're not actually thinking about you. They're so, thinking about themselves and they're worried what you're thinking about them. But that fear, even before it happens, Amy, how many people does that stop? How many people aren't going to paint that picture? write that song, start that business, quit that job. I, 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 someone on Instagram wrote me and said they have a high-paying job. If you were to look at her, she's super successful, and she she's trying so hard to get out. She doesn't want to do it. She, wants, she has this creative idea, but she doesn't want to fail. And she doesn't want to fail in front of these people would be, who basically would say, what the fuck are you doing? You have a great job. What are you doing? Don't do that. Well, perfectionism is the death of action. I didn't write that down. That's yeah, right. I just came up with that. That's pretty good. Is that right? <laughs> I mean, did you I've just heard, come up with that? I did, but I've heard I've heard some version of that before. You hear people say that um, it, it, you know, don't don't do it perfect. Just do it. Just get it oh, done. Yeah. Oh, or yeah, totally. you know, but um, it is the death of action. Yeah. Perfectionism is the death of action because you say so you, we stay so paralyzed not taking action. And honestly, like, you know, we were talking about mindset last time and, and I'm really into mindset and, and, you know, reframing, but at the end of the day, if you can't think your way through things, you have to actually follow through with action. And the best way to even know where you stand or know what you need to learn is to just start taking those steps forward. You don't even know what you need to learn or what you need to do, or you might even surprise yourself. Like you're awesome. Like, holy shit, I'm good at this. Or who knew? But you you have to take action. Well, Amy, there, there's, you know, we're saying <laughs> go for it and don't worry what people think and, and move forward. And again, easier said than done. I did not make that one up, by the way. <laughs> if I ask you later, will you think about it later in the podcast when I, I usually ask you some questions later? Yeah. Uh, will you maybe give us some some tips on, yeah. I, I just know I was beat down so badly that I don't want to feel that way ever again. And so that's, that's my tip. <laughs> you have to hit rock bottom sometimes. It's not really a tip, but that's how I work. But if you have some things that could maybe allow people to get past this, to, to, yeah. to live their true self would make me so happy. Well, think about it this way, that the stress of not being true to yourself is worse than the stress of trying and making mistakes. 
you just got to take those steps, right? joined today by Jody Milstein, who we are very excited to talk to today. She um, falls right into the doctor and the DJ, uh, both <laughs> both categories. Uh, so we love that here, being the doctor and the DJ. And uh, we have a lot of reasons we want to talk to you today, Jody. We're going to get into it very soon. But quick, could you give um, a quick introduction of who you are, what you do, and where we're talking to you today? Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. And it's always so great to connect with people who are kind of bridging that, you know, uh, that gap between mental health and the healthcare industry and music. So I'm glad to be here. I am in Los Angeles right now. Um, my office is in Sherman Oaks, which is uh, just about 15 minutes away from here. And I am a psychotherapist and I've been uh, doing this for 15 years, and it's my second career that I came into after I'd been in the music industry for probably about 15 years, and uh, just have been able to blend the two by now working as a psychotherapist with musicians and artists and bands, and in a very different way than I worked with creative people when I was in the music industry at uh, A&M Records and in management. So I've been able to kind of bridge the two and especially through COVID and quarantine, really uh, working hard to try to, you know, help people to stay afloat through all of this. Yeah. When we first checked in with Jody uh, a little while ago and we realized a few things, we know a lot of the same people. Um, We've all been in the music industry and I realized two out of the three people talking today got out of the music industry. (laughs) So... So there's just one of us left. Um, it was very interesting how kind of similar stories to, to Amy as well, how Amy left uh, the music industry and got uh, into healing and, and helping others. So um, we were really excited to talk to you today. Could you talk a little bit about that history in the music business? You touched on it, but just to paint the picture for people, uh, maybe outside of the industry, what it is you did, where you were. I'd say a story, but there's probably a thousand stories. (laughs) Um, But maybe just give us a little history of what you did in the music business. Sure. Well, I got into the music industry because I love music. I was always the one, you know, back in the 80s when we would, you know, sleep over, you know, outside of Tower Records or something to get the best tickets. And so I just always loved music. So when I was at my, um, my last year at UCLA, I was graduating with a sociology degree that I was thinking, I don't know what I'm exactly going to be doing with this, but I'd always loved music. So I went to the Career Placement Center and was like, you know, I'm going to see if there are any music industry internships here. Found the internship um, at A&M Records. And when I graduated, they offered me a full-time position. And so I was in the artist relations department. And that basically was the department that dealt with all the artists, 
from the beginning of their careers through, you know, all the ups and downs and uh, through, you know, the tail end if they, you know, had lasted that long and pretty much dealing with all the touring. And so I loved concerts and it was the perfect fit for me. And it was one of those things that since I'd been around for almost a year, just interning and doing whatever I could, it was one of those interviews that, you know, you only wish for, you know, <laughs> I walked in there, Jim Garneau, who was the, you know, head of the department at that time, basically was like, so you want to work here? You know, you've been around, you want to work here? I'm like, yeah, I really want to work here. He's like, okay, you, know, you can chew gum and walk at the same time. I go, yeah, I can, I can do it. I'll do anything. He's like, okay, you're hired. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So it was very exciting. I was very excited to, you know, jump in and just do anything at that moment. And so I pretty much, you know, went from being, you know, his assistant and then, you know, working my way into running pretty much all the budgeting for the artist development and artist relations department and any of the tours, whether they were concert tours or promo tours, dealt with all the artists, you know, from every genre of the, you know, roster, you know, from, you know, Soundgarden to Barry White to, you know, Sheryl Crow, I mean, everything in between. And so it was a really amazing ride. And all of us were kind of in, in it at the same time. We were all around the same age. It was like we grew up together and we went to, you know, the University of A&M or something. <laughs> Um, do you, did, did you have a, um, an early favorite, like, did you have a, a particular favorite band or artist you got to work with in the, I'm thinking of like your early years, like when you were just getting going with bands, was there, was there one act in particular that you just were like, oh my gosh, this is, this is why I do this. Well, I was really fortunate when I first got into it that Temple of the Dog had just come out and or they were promoting it and so i didn't really know a whole lot about these guys up in seattle and you know although soundgarden was on a and m i didn't know them at all pretty much you know in the la band metal hard rock kind of genre and so i had an opportunity to work with all of these guys who you know were from different bands and got to know the soundgarden guys of course really well through that experience and so that began an incredible run with all of the guys from Soundgarden and their management company. Most importantly, Susan Silver, who has been an incredible mentor all these years of a strong, fierce, intelligent woman, you know, in the industry. And I learned a lot from her. And so, yeah, Soundgarden was definitely one of the, you know, beginning bands that I worked with through until, you know, they kind of ended their career at 97, I think is before, before A&M closed. I'm getting all my music questions in early. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, I have to ask now that time frame, there's some amazing bands and artists. Um, can you throw out a favorite as well that maybe you didn't work with that was uh, a hometown favorite or, or someone down there that, that you just, their shows were just everything to you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we were on the strip, you know, the Sunset Strip, which is, you know, where all the shows were, the Roxy and the Whiskey and then down a little bit further, you know, the Troubadour. And so I pretty much saw all of those like metal bands, you know, <laughs> through the 80s and so forth. And, you know, Guns N' Roses, who were, you know, right there in the thick of it in the early, you know, mid 80s, early 80s. And so that was a lot of fun. And, you know, all of those bands who, you know, who knows where they ended up 
you know, going to that were like, you know, the bank tangos of the world and bullet boys. And I mean, faster pussycat. I mean, we were all kind of in that whole realm of all the clubs that were happening at that time. And so that was really awesome to be part of that. And, you know, when somebody would come to town and they play like a sneak show or something and it would be, you know, at the Roxy or the Troubadour, that was always really special too. So I just, I just, I loved music and I loved the industry. That transition in music that you mentioned, seeing Faster Pussycat and the Bullet Boys and like all those, I, I had most of their tapes because I was into that metal and then was I went along with the, and it's funny you brought up Temple of the Dog and Soundgarden. You see the progression, even geographically, that this stuff going on really was was in Seattle too, but it's just such a different version of it. Um, and a lot of people who weren't around then or listened to a lot of metal don't realize, you know, like the mother love bones in the world and these other bands, like there was so much glam and metal going on. And that had more of an influence, I think, than, than most any other genre when, when you look at the Seattle sound. So I, lo- I love the geographical and the the time frame of those things happening. So thank you. That that's me nerding out. Um, well, that- and it's fun too because at A and M, um, the head of our A and R department, David Anderley, was in that late sixties, seventies genre. You yeah. know, also another you know guy named Al Mark. So it was always fun to hear all these great stories from that era leading into the eighties. So it's always I, I love it. I love hearing all the fun stories oh, that people yeah. have. It just it fills in so many blanks when you even hear smaller stories. I just eat up those touring books and this band could be your life. And like all those things just sort of fill in a lot of, um, a lot of questions I have, how we got from here to here. But yeah, I took history in college and then like music. So it's, but speaking of filling in gaps and getting from here to there, Jody, I want to hear your story of what made you decide to go into psychotherapy. Well, you know, the end of the nineties, things changed dramatically in the industry. You know, I mean, Napster was, was around, um, A&M was part of Polygram, which was purchased by Universal. And then A&M was absorbed into Interscope along with Geffen. And, you know, two of the most prized boutique, you know, independent labels were suddenly just basically dissolved. And, I just knew that there was something kind of going on. And there was a part of me that felt like I needed to exercise my brain. I wanted to go back to school for something. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to go back to school for, I also realized I was fascinated by the subculture of drug addicts and addiction. And being in the industry, it was being around a lot of addiction and losing a lot of people, which was tragic. And so there's that part of me that wanted to also help people in a different way who were in music. And when I was making my decision, I was looking into psychotherapy. And then I also have an incredible love of animals. And so at the same time, there's a college out here that specializes in animal training and animal behavior. And so I was looking into this incredible program about how to, you know, work with animal behavior. And so I was like, animal behavior, human behavior, which one should I go for? I got to, I got to ask you now, are we talking like training tigers or, or like dogs? Large animal training. Okay. Yeah. I was looking at the tigers and, and during that time, you know, I took a little break after A&M was absolved. And 
I spent some time at like these wild animal places around here. And I just really was like amazed by these incredibly majestic animals and how to also help them. So I was like, okay, help animals, help people. What should I do? And what really changed and made my decision because I was still in the industry at the time. I was working with uh, Lionel Richie's production company and management company. And so I still needed to work full time and I needed a program that I could still work full time and go to school. And the animal training program was a full time program that you had to go during the day, be up at six in the morning, be at the campus all day. It was like regular college. So Antioch University offered a program in mental health and psychology that I could go all day Saturdays. So I was working full time with Lionel and then going all day Saturdays and just really started to recognize how important it was to learn about psychology and mental health and how helpful it was for me personally and just to understand, you know, human behavior and eventually, you know, lead that into my referral pool, which were people in the music industry. And then I kind of just started connecting the dots with that and working with more and more people who were in music and just trying to understand, you know, what I could do from another point of view and still be involved in music. I, I love that you sort of touched back and were able to combine your your history with music and bring that into the mental health space. Because I always think of this when you learn something new and you have these aha moments of, oh my God, like, I, I wish I knew this then, or or how can I sort of touch back and, and help? And it sounds like that's exactly what you did. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there were incidents of people who, you know, I would see obviously caught up into the, in their addiction, but then also, you know, uh, I worked with blues traveler very closely with blues traveler and the bassist Bobby, he, you know, was an addict and, you know, basically, you know, it, it took him out and, you know, he had a heart attack. And so that's where, um, you know, it's kind of thinking about, you know, what, what can I do like with this information that I have now in the role that I was in, I don't know how much I would have been able to necessarily do. I was still, you know, really kind of young and green at that time. But I guess, you know, as you get older and also what role a lot of mental health professionals are playing now in helping people in the music industry, especially this incredible organization I'm part of that we were all from the industry at one time and now we're working to educate managers and labels and agents for the signs to look out for so that we can avoid, you know, these incredible tragedies that have come in the last five years is, you know, Chris Cornell and, and, you know, I mean, in Chester, it, it's just, it's been very tough, you know, what's happened and, you know, all the others that have, you know, come before them and after. And so it is really working to also educate not just those who are, you know, artists and musicians, but those who surround them and how important it is to take all of this seriously and that you can't run somebody in the ground and expect the longevity of a career. Can you quickly tell us the organization that uh, you mentioned? Yes, it's Music Industry Therapists and Coaches. 
And it was started by a woman, her name's Tamson Embleton, and she's in the UK. And it really started with this goal to bring those who were in the music industry at one time, because there's a certain understanding, a certain culture that you kind of understand when you've you know, done something for so long, and then you're trying to bring in, you know, mental health with it. And not having to kind of be educated as maybe someone else who's a psychotherapist that might need to kind of understand a little bit more about what life is like on the road and what the stressors are. And so in bringing all of us together, she's also secured a publishing deal that we are putting out this incredible manual that is mental health and touring manual that will be provided to all of those who are on tour. And the idea is to get into all the dressing rooms, all the green rooms. Live Nation is sponsoring it at this point. We're, you know, obviously looking for other support, but it's just really getting information out there. And it's going to be a great how-to guide, not just you know, stories and reading about stuff, but okay, this is what you look for. This is what you do. Yeah. It seems too, that you, you need those signs and those, um, skills early in this. Uh, you know, you, when you hear the story of Scott Weiland or you, or you read Mark Lanigan's book or you, you see, you see that there's nothing, the handlers and the, the tour manager and the, they seem so far out of control at that point that even hired bodyguards couldn't stop Scott, for instance, right? I assume it's important to get in early on those signs that that probably are missed when you're touring. Yes, absolutely. It is important. And it's really essential that managers go into working with artists with a different point of view these days. I actually am working with a particular manager who had me do a month's worth of sessions with someone that he was signing, a new artist, to basically get that person kind of comfortable in case they need psychotherapy down the line, but also to, you know, with this particular artist's permission and that I was able to share with the manager and we were able to all work together with any of the stressors that he may be feeling or anything that maybe was in his past that we need to be aware of going forward. And I just, I feel like there's another level of awareness now that yeah. people are going into the industry, I'm hoping, um, than the Wild West that seemed to be up until like you know, 2000 or so. Well, the music industry and touring is a very different animal than let's say corporate culture, right? You know, corporate culture, people are doing their five day work weeks and probably working a little at night and on the weekends, which, you know, I think is really unhealthy, really against all that. And touring culture though, is very unique in that there's a tour and there's a certain amount of money to be made, and then there's a schedule. And I would watch people put tours together and think, holy fuck, you're going to kill these people. And, and that's what happens. And a lot of it is to try to save money and to have as many dates as close together as possible. And, you know, in retrospect, now that I'm an integrative doctor, and I just think, wow, there's, there's another way, like at the planning of these things, it can go different. There can be more rest days and more resources and more, you know, breaks, because that is a lot to put on people to go play a show, 
that's you're totally exposed, you're giving everything you've got and, and you're getting a lot from the audience and you're getting a lot from what you're doing. But it wears people the fuck out. <laughs> and then they got to go do it again. And then again, and then, and then again, and just from like a stress and sleep and nutrition standpoint, it's insane to me. And I just I wonder with this touring mental health manual, is there support or is there training for people who are planning these tours? Does that make sense? Oh, sure it does. And in fact, we have done some trainings with a couple labels. And one label brought their A&R department in and, you know, pretty much told us, okay, what information is it that their A&R people are, are looking for? And we really tried to help educate how important it is to look at the bigger picture here instead of, okay, yes, you know, someone is going from city to city and it would be great to stick this other, you know, show in the middle to make up for those miles, but at what cost? And, you know, someone, like you said, they do show after show, but then we forget, oh, wait, they have to go to this radio station. Oh, they have to do these interviews. Oh, there's a photo shoot. So when someone from the outside is looking in and going, what is, what's the big deal? They go and they play a show and they sing and, you know, it's fun, the audience, but then, you know, you have 5,000 miles to cover, you know, in maybe a, a few, you know, a few weeks and you are you know, doing all these other interviews and stressors. And then they're human beings too. So they have families at home. They have other things going on. And we have to promote balance. And that's what I'm always trying to express. It's like not saying that you can't do it all. It's just where is the balance? Because all of us have just 100%. We don't have 150%. We have 100%. So of this pie, we can only divide it so many times until there's nothing left. Does this cross over to um, the up and coming bands that don't have the infrastructure that some of the larger bands and, and labels can provide? I'm thinking of the band that's heading out and think they have to play, um, or maybe they do. They have to play every night to be able to afford to be able to tour, to sell merch. You know, we're just coming out of this pandemic. So this is all starting up again. What I worry about is you come out of the gate so hard playing, I'm going to play Seattle tonight. We can make Salt Lake. We'll just drive all night. We'll play Salt Lake, and then we're going to hit Chicago. And then we're, you know, I, I'm a little nervous for artists too who are both eager and uh, broke. And is there tools for artists to be able to mix those two things to figure out a way to afford it? Because if if you can get them to look long term, what you're saying makes total sense. It, it, it as a as an industry, if you don't see what you're doing to I, I'm not I don't mean to call artists like a product. But if you were to put this out there and burn it out, that's a terrible investment. So it's in your best interest to make sure the ban goes a long, a long way, a long time. They're able to perform. They don't go crazy. They don't become addicts. They don't just give up on music like so many have. But for the up-and-comers, do you have advice or are these tools applicable to them? Well, I actually deal with, in my psychotherapy practice, some managers who, you know, bring to me about, you know, these different situations with newer artists and, you know, talking about their schedules and the rigors of this. And we will talk about, you know, how essential is it? I mean, you know, obviously I'm coming from a therapeutic point of view, not like a collaborative effort, but it stresses the managers that are my clients out when the artist is stressed out. So 
that's where I'm thinking, you know, I'm talking to them, okay, what can you do differently here? And can you step back and see, you know, the humanity in this person? And, you know, there are artists who might just be doing one thing after another. And then it's kind of like, when was the last time that artist could completely unplug for a week or two? And so that's what I try to also, you know, look at and promote is that there has to be some time to fill that tank back up. Because if you just are running on empty the whole time, eventually you're going to break the engine. (laughs) You know, you can't refuel, you know, you're just going to break down. So, you know, I really try to say, okay, yeah, all right, you play, you know, Seattle or whatever, and you want to play Utah. Well, you know, maybe it's important to kind of see how can you get to Utah in a more practical way? And maybe you don't play Utah the next day, unless, of course, I know that there's this incredible festival and we've got to get to the festival and so it's like, you know, what are you going to do? I've talked to dozens of artists and this comes up a lot that um, they feel like they should be grateful. And so they're going to follow whatever tour schedule you give them and do whatever work they're going to do, because look at them. They are one of the few that 1% that can make a living at music and they should be grateful. And I feel that fans feel that way. Are you kidding me? I go to my nine to five. I don't make music. I got to, I don't even like my job and you're making tons of money in theory and, and out there doing and playing your dream. So I, I assume when you're talking to, um, to artists, there's, there's that factor of gratefulness of, I should be grateful and I can't complain and I can't feel bad. And this is all of this is good. This is my dream. Well, I think it's so valuable that artists are speaking out more and more, you know, the Lady Gagas and the, you know, different people who have struggled with the fact that I have everything. Why do I still feel depressed? Well, because before everything, you're a human being and human beings have feelings. We are made up of chemicals. I mean, you know, as of course, you know, Amy, you know, what you, what you deal with and that comes before fame and fortune and all of this other stuff. And it's so humbling that people are speaking out and you've got, you know, other people who are high profile, you know, the series that Oprah Winfrey and Prince Harry did. I found that really interesting because it really brought humility to people who we look at as like, Oh my gosh, you know, these people are so up there, but they are entitled to taking care of themselves. And when their feelings come up and they might feel I should be grateful for the fact that I am that 1% that can go out there. That's important to, you know, show of course gratitude, but it's also important that they take care of themselves at the same time. And that they are able to use assertive communication, which is something I promote big time in my practice is, you know, it's so important to be able to be assertive and speak for yourself and what your needs are, as opposed to if we're passive and then build resentment. And then that becomes aggression, which is either explosion or implosion. And we know that people who feel guilty about I should be feeling this way. I should be grateful, often implode. And that's where that continuum really screws up. And then you go through this cycle of guilt and then you come back down to, okay, I'm not going to speak up for myself because I don't want to rock the boat. 
and it goes back around circles. So it's so important to learn how to speak up for your needs. I really encourage young new artists to exercise their voice. I mean, you've got these 25-year-old young artists who, you know, are like, oh my gosh, I'm just so thankful to have a manager and an agent and all this. And I'm like, okay, so how can you use your healthy you know, voice to speak up for what needs you have that you need to spend some time with your family or you need a day off because you are really tired. <laughs> I find that in this sort of type A overachieving culture, or at least people feel guilty if they're not achieving at all times, right? And and there is, you know, we do get like these dopamine hits from achieving things and from, mm-hmm. you know, checking things off and having accomplishments and that feels good. But I think in our culture, it's really hard for human beings to hold two truths at once that you can be completely grateful for everything you have and you're burnt the fuck out and you need a break. <laughs> like there's this tendency to either or everything that I can't be this way because I'm this way, or I should do this because of this. And I think it's a hard lesson for us to learn that two truths can be true at once and that it can be an and both and that we can rest and be productive and we can take care of our mental and physical health and achieve things and do great things. But it's sort of, I don't know, I see this a lot in so many people. They don't see it. They don't, they're, they don't give themselves the grace of holding two truths at once. That's a really, really good point because you're right. Until you actually take the risk and say, I am going to slow down and I am going to see if this works better for me, you just keep going on that hamster wheel. And I deal a lot with uh, eating disorders as well, since it's kind of in the scope of addiction and everything. And it's so hard to help someone who has been in a certain mindset for so long and caught up to say, it's okay to just eat what you want and just to try it. I want you to just try it because there's all these rules and I can't eat this and I can't eat that and I can't do this and I can't do that. And I'm like, just give it a try for a day, you know, see how it, how it is to not have all these restrictions and everything on you. And it, it is that risk to try to do something different. And that's where it's so important to refuel and say, wow, you know what? That is interesting. I did take that particular day off instead of doing a slew of interviews. And wow, I'm coming into these interviews now feeling really energized and I'm ready to talk to these people instead of, you know, ready to just scream at the first person who asks you a question or cancel at the last minute. And that's a whole other thing that comes about that loses productivity. It's like, okay, you're going to burn this person out to such a point that they're not going to be able to do the show because either physically their voice can't handle it or emotionally or, you know, dehydration, which is always the the go-to, which we know is like, you know, they're exhausted. So, you know, but it is really taking an industry that has run in a particular way for so many decades and saying, you know, give it a try and just see if maybe this will be better. Do you, do you recognize some similar um, traits of musicians that I think people would be maybe surprised or, uh, or maybe it confirms what people think? Because there's a certain person, a creative person, um, 
I, I've dealt with that, that they have similar traits, similar kind of histories, similar ways of looking at the world. Have you run into this, like some similar um, struggles that musicians have that maybe the general public who just like going to shows and think, that, again, that's the life might be surprised to learn? Yeah, I, yes. I, I think that a lot of artists are very hard on themselves and a lot are perfectionists. And, you know, people think, oh, they just get up there and they just go, you know, play, play. But for them to put together a song that, you know, others really connect with, there's a depth that comes from them. And when they're able to transfer that in a way that others can connect as well, there's something that goes on that just really sensitive within them. I mean, you know, a lot of artists are very sensitive. I mean, they're able to get down to what those emotions are and really provoke them in a way that other people hear it and they feel it. You know, how often do we hear a song that we're just like, oh my gosh, you know, oh, you know, and decades later. And so I think that there's some level of sensitivity that a lot of artists have. I think there's, you know, this perfectionism, there's, you know, when they cross over from this place of obscurity to popularity, that is a whole other door that they walk through that is really scary for a lot of people. And, you know, it's what they always wanted, but it's also really intimidating. And I think the pressure of then having to keep up that, you know, level really gets to people. And I think that in order to maintain that level, you know, if they're not emotionally, physically stable, then, you know, they turn to other, other sources, whether it's addiction or sex or, you know, whatever it might be in order to compensate for those feelings instead of just sitting with those feelings and going, okay, I'm feeling really anxious. I can deal with it. Well, okay. I can have a drink. I can do this. And those are short-term gratification ways of dealing with anxiety or being anxious instead of something long-term that's more healthy, like, okay, I need to work out. I need to meditate. I need to talk to somebody and really get to the root of it. There's so much about immediate gratification. You know, people start in this industry so young and they're not even like at an age where, you know, everything's fully formed in their brain (laughs) and you're asking them to manage impulsivity when physiologically they're not finished developing. And so then they get in these patterns and unfortunately past 27, when everything kind of seems to settle down and they're 40, they're still acting like they're 20 because they're caught up in that and they haven't really developed in a healthy way through all of it. Do you think that musicians that you've worked with, both in the music industry and as a psychotherapist, would say that music is a kind of therapy for them? That maybe initially they got into being a musician because it contributed to their mental health or contributed to their creative expression? And and then do you see it change like from maybe something that they love and helped them to then being this thing that is now breaking them down with the career and the touring and the, you know, all the expectations and the money and the people. And if you can just talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. I mean, I can't even count how many artists say that, you know, when they 
were growing up that music was their escape and, you know, songwriting was their escape. And they would spend hours upon hours playing the guitar because that was the way that they could really feel like they could get those emotions out and, you know, work through, you know, whatever's going on with them or songwriting or, or even poetry, whatever it is, as far as writing down some feelings that turned into songs. And so that I think is a very common Uh, I think that what happens later is that it goes from how music is so valuable to them and is their escape and their salvation to when the business corrupts that and it becomes more about the machine than the music because you have all of these people that are depending on you. And that that's a lot of pressure, you know, for some people who started this very young and really haven't developed to the point that they can handle the fact that they're running a corporation of, you know, hundreds of people at the age of, you know, 25, whose livelihoods depend on them touring all the time. And that pressure of like, you know, I got to play this song for the 300th time in a row that used to be this incredible song for me, but now it's, it's exhausting. So that's where, you know, you have that big B word, which is burnout. And that is so destructive that, you know, it's important to say, how can you still have fun with all of this? So, you know, when I talk to artists who are now anticipating going out, it's like, how can you do this differently now since you've had a year to kind of think about what's going on here? I mean, this has been the longest break most musicians have ever had in their entire lives you know, musicians who have been touring for 40, 50 years, yeah, you know, it's the first chance they've had to regroup, like you talked about in getting that space. And I, again, interviewing dozens of musicians, that's what they've all said. I think, I, I think every last person I talked to and how they've never had a break and they want to do it differently. And that's a great sign. Um, and I hopefully mixed with the general public supporting musicians better making sure that they are supported in a way where they can make that their career, that they have insurance, that they can make a living at this, that they take these mental health breaks, that they take care of themselves. I'm hoping that's what comes next. Um, before we go, I, 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 how do you feel coming out of this pandemic? You mentioned earlier, you see that there's a change from you, back in your day um, how people treat touring and just the mayhem and, you know, not taking care of yourself and just go, 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 go. Do you see that we are headed towards that or that musicians, I should say, are headed towards a better future? Do you think, do you think this pandemic has helped that? I think that coming out of the pandemic, it is an opportunity to see, you know, how things can be done different. During the pandemic, I think it was really terrifying and it was really hard on everybody in the industry, musicians, artists, especially the production companies and the venues and so forth, who are so dependent. I mean, at least, you know, artists can continue writing songs, even though some were not inspired and it was hard for them to feel like they could do anything. And they felt guilty for that. Oh my gosh, you know, we're, I haven't, you know, had to, had to go anywhere for three months and I still can't, you know, write a song. So it's, trying to realize that, you know, no matter how famous you are or how much you love doing what you do, you're still human and you need to also take care of yourself. And I think that that's something that people have recognized during this pandemic is that 
wow, I finally had an opportunity to slow down and, and, you know, maybe somebody exercised a little bit more, maybe they didn't, but at least it's saying that we took a pause from being in this rat race that we were all like running so fast. I remember just before the pandemic, even saying, oh my God, I'm so tired. I feel like I have to run do 300 things at one time. And then it just went and everything stopped. I think also that just in light of the tragedies that have happened with artists and how people are more open to understanding mental health. I think that's a huge step. I think a lot of people are in therapy who maybe never would have thought about being in therapy. I think therapy is normalized now more, at least in certain communities. But the fact that I'm at least hearing different people in the industry, on the business side, wanting to know more, wanting to understand more. These major labels who are coming to MITC, musicians, music industry therapists and coaches, to get the whole thing in, that are coming to us and asking for these seminars is incredible because it is showing that they want to do things differently. And we have to. I think that there was a certain culture to the music industry for many, many years. You know, white men running the show. And and there wasn't a lot of input from the, the rest of the population and the rest of the cultures. And, and, and I think now, you know, people are coming in and it's kind of like, hey, you know what? You did it for all these years. And yeah, you did you did it pretty well, but I think we could do better. So I think that, you know, more people are getting higher positions who aren't fitting that stereotype. And I think that that's really valuable too. And that people just behind the scenes in the industry, I mean, marketing, whatever you're doing, they're in therapy. And so, you know, they know how valuable it is. So it's important for their artists to be in therapy and to have balance. That's again, I keep coming back to that word and how valuable that is. Well, you're speaking my language. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) if anything, the more we can promote rest and the more we can promote things that are basic. And I talk about this on the podcast all the time, you know, sleep, hydration, rest, uh, eat your vegetables and get some minerals going in your body, you know, and then, um, but I think the bigger question, or I guess answer, I'm, I'm answering it is that all of us as a whole, need to look at this and and really reconsider what we're doing. And I think that the um, pandemic was a huge wake-up call for a lot of industries and getting us into valuing different things than just how much can we fit into five minutes and how hard can we work people and taking a break and looking at things very differently and for all of our benefit. I think what you're sharing is so valuable, especially about sleep, because I think that people took sleep for granted, but I think people have slept more during this pandemic than they've slept (laughs) probably their entire lives combined in this one year. And I think it is so important that people realize that sleep, you know, is so important for mental and physical health and, you know, rejuvenating us on the cellular level that affects our mental health as well. And how when we get older, you know, I mean, oh my gosh, I could live on four hours of sleep and then just sleep through the weekend. Well, at this stage in my life, I can't do that because I have a 
child. I have a daughter and, you know, I, I can't live on four hours a night because I'm going to have a migraine in one day if I do that. And it's just realizing these are our human bodies. They're just not going to keep going. And it is interesting to see some of these artists and musicians who are now way up there. You know, I mean, you know, Charlie Watts just turned 80 and it's just, it's incredible to think of like, wow, how few are up there though. I can just name, you know, off the top of my head, you know, a dozen people who passed and you wonder if like you work the body to such an extent that, you know, it takes its toll. Of course, you know, some of those who are way up there in the 70s, and you know, that are preserved, but the average body, I don't know how, you know, putting the rigors of a touring life can, you know, be sustained. And how are so many of them in the Rolling Stones? <laughs> <laughs> that interesting. <laughs> I mean, they've had their loss, clearly, but my God, <laughs> you mentioned them all. Or I look at Iggy Pop and I'm like, well, he is in shape. I mean... He is, but you know, he also thankfully got clean and sober at a particular time. Well, that's true. You see a lot of that. You see a lot of um, artists and musicians, you know, getting clean and sober and then moving into that second phase of their career in a sort of with in a healthier way. You know, Jody, I wanted, um, before we go, I wanted to just circle back to the animal training. I was going to ask that too. (laughs) (laughs) Because I I say this all the time, and you might agree, I don't know. I always say that humans and animals are not that different. Humans are the only animals that think they're not animals. And it's it's that forgetting some of those basics. You know, the tigers that you were going to maybe go train... they eat when they're hungry. They sleep when they're tired. They, they're not spinning out in anxiety. <laughs> and, and I know human beings, our brains are, are different. They are. But some of this stuff is basic. And if, if we can kind of grasp that as a culture or remember that somehow. Yes, I think that's important too. And I think that this pandemic gave people pause to at least try some new things and to just quiet things down enough to maybe hear that something can be different. You know, we heard different things and we learned different things and, you know, some stuff you could take and some stuff you throw away, but it was quiet enough to at least take in something new. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's, you know, that's at least something that came of it. (laughs) Well, Jody, where can people find you if they are listening to this and they're like, Oh, I got to talk to her. And can you tell us when the touring manual might be available or where people can learn more about that? Well, uh, you can reach me. I have two websites. One is my full name, jodymilstein.com. And the other one that's more geared toward music specifically is rockstartherapy.com. And just as it sounds, rockstartherapy.com. And then on there are my phone numbers and email addresses and how to reach me. So I'm always happy to talk to people and, you know, give my insight and, you know, share kind of what my, you know, thoughts are about it, whether it's, you know, a potential new client or even just somebody who's interested in just learning more about what is going on out there. And then um, as far as the mental health and touring manual, that I believe we're hoping to have it released later this year. You know, it's kind of going through now the final editing stages, which is terrific because we've all contributed to different chapters. 
And so I believe that they're trying to get it out, hopefully by the end of this year. It's interesting how the timing is because this all started way before the pandemic and it's very timely now. And we've actually kind of updated some things that have come to light during the pandemic. So I do hope that that, you know, comes out and that particular um, organization, um, music industry therapists and coaches can be found um, as well online too. Just real quick, two things. One, is your third career going to be back to training animals? Because I can't get that out of my head. It seems like such a great job, especially after we've all been just completely um, destroyed by the Tiger King as that being the representative of how you treat uh, wild animals. And two, did we miss anything that you want to get across to, to our listeners today? Well, I love animals. Um, you know, I, I love at some point when things kind of settle down a little bit more to do more rescuing because, um, you know, I do rescue and, you know, adoption and that sort of thing. And you never know, you know, there might be an opportunity, especially when I went back to school, it was in, you know, early 2000s and there weren't so many opportunities for people who were working full time and had that kind of schedule catered to that. Now more places are. So I might just have to look into more park college and see if there's something that I might be able to do. So we'll see about that. And as far as, um, I, gosh, I think we covered everything. I mean, you know, I, I just, I, I love learning about what you both are doing and, you know, where you've come from. It's, you know, really interesting to, you know, hear how we together. I mean, just talking to you both too, I, I, I was thinking, you know, when I'm talking and interviewing bands, when they come back to the station uh, uh, that I'm at and having a resource like that or checking in with them, because even bystanders like myself can see it. I can tell you when the band walks in the room or I walk in, I can tell you where they are on tour. I can tell you how bad it's been or how good it's been. Just seeing some of them so sad. I remember seeing a band that um, they were up and coming and, and starting to make it. And I had them in the studio and it's just great, just energy and happy. And they were all getting along and about two years pass. They come by again. <laughs> I walked in the room. I was like, oh, fuck. These guys are done. They are done. I don't know if they're done as a band, but they're done. And soon after they canceled the rest of their tour, there was a lot of sadness, you know, or, or, um, Scott Hutchinson came in, um, uh, of Frightened Rabbit, who, um, I was so sad took his life and, and you're, uh, maybe a year or two after our interview. And there was no way to tell. He was mm -hmm. so happy. He was so, it just seemed on top of things and, and his mental health and his struggles, um, with, with, depression and suicide were all very, everyone kind of knew about them. He talked very openly about it. And we talked about it in the interview because I deal with depression as well. So I just, there are times you just don't know, but there are other times I think we can all, um, you know, be there for musicians and whatever it is. If it's just being nice to them or it's buying their shirt when they're feeling down or tell them they did a good job or uh, a pat on the back. I think we can all be helping those people who give us so much in this world. So I really appreciate uh, hearing from you that that, that that is that what we should be doing? Yeah, I, I think that that's you know that's all important as well, and I think that just again you know offering balance and you know being understanding no matter you know what we're doing that you know if we can just promote that as a society then hopefully that will kind of you know ripple effects to all the different industries including music and the one thing I want to do I want to put out there that you mentioned is about health insurance for, 
musicians and those in the industry who weren't aren't working under a corporation. And that is something that is just tragic. And it has to change because at least with actors and people in the film and TV, they have, you know, the DGA, they have SAG, they have these organizations that they can get health insurance and music, nothing. Music Cares is an incredible organization that does help with subsidizing, but uh, there has to be something that's changed that as a an industry that you can get health insurance. I mean, you know, I just read about uh, the passing of the more, most recent lead singer of Skid Row and how he didn't have any health insurance and he couldn't really fight his liver cancer. And, you know, it's just, it, that's that's something that if I could put anything out there that it has to change. Um, and really quick too, do you have a show that you're, a ticket in your pocket yet or someone you're hoping to see now that this, this yeah, thing is almost yeah. over? Who is it? Yeah, well, my daughter's a huge Billie Eilish fan, and we had tickets to see her in 2020, and it was April, and it was just, Uh, it was still waiting to see, maybe we could still see her. So I got tickets for Billie Eilish for my daughter for next April, two years after (laughs) when we were supposed to see her, and she's very excited. Good. Well, uh, have fun. (laughs) We... uh, I can't believe we lived through that long a period without seeing live music. And it really reminds you that it truly is healing to, to go to those shows. The most meditative community activity I think you can do. So thank you so much, Jody. It's been awesome talking to you and a fellow traveler out there who are trying to, trying to help musicians and, and use your own experience to do so. It's very inspiring. Early in the morning, I cry from bedtime. Just why leading all kinds of lies But the feeling like a bed without a registry Has been fighting me for such a long time And I'll try to find an end Try to shine for a while So now we find ourselves in the waiting room of history And hate ourselves for being so blind That was Jody Milstein, marriage and family therapist and rockstartherapy.com uh, is where you can find her on Twitter. It's also at Rockstar Therapy. She's on Facebook under that name as well. If you, if you look up Rockstar Therapy, you will find her. And I hope musicians out there uh, do seek therapy. Um, I know uh, insurance isn't a thing with most musicians and that is a fucking travesty, but hopefully they can find therapy out there because, you know, creative types... Um, Struggle, you know. I know. I, well, you know how I feel about insurance companies. Yes, I I know very much. Amy does not take insurance, by the way. Is I that? don't. I don't. It because it's organized crime. Yeah. I mean, it's insurance companies practicing medicine. They're telling the doctors what they will and will not cover, and it. You know, I definitely wrestle with it because I want people to have access, and so really, um, it should. That's why we need, um, 
it to be organized through all of the citizens of the United States should have basic coverage. And then, you know, with my business model, I do a lot of free stuff. You know, you can certainly do a lot of free stuff with me if you follow me on Instagram or if you subscribe to my newsletter. I give all kinds of stuff. And then I do classes and I do group visits, which are affordable. And then I do one-on-one. So I'm trying to build a practice where there's all these different entry points. Well, you can find more information about us, by the way, the doctor and the DJ yeah. on uh, Instagram. That's where you can uh, you can direct message us as well if you have questions or comments on the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Mm-hmm. Be kind. That would be ironic if you weren't during this podcast. <laughs> you guys suck. Yeah, you didn't get the podcast uh, right. Um, but we'd love to hear from you where you're listening from. Yeah. We hear from people all the time, but uh, don't be shy. We'd love to hear from people out there. Um, hopefully, the podcast is making an impact. And tell everyone about it, too. That's our marketing, Amy. That's our marketing right there. <laughs> Trust me, I, I built a nonprofit radio station built on, hey, that place is great. So it took a few years. Uh, Amy, I, I want to get back to our original conversation at the beginning of this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking about, you know, it, taking chances. And, and, you know, whether we let yeah. the opinions of other people influence whether or not we take action in our lives. That's right. So if you are going to take action in your life, whatever it might be, maybe you're going to get, again, get out of that marriage and you're worried what people will think even. Or you're going to move, or you want to start a new job, or you want to create a company, or you want to be a painter, or you want to sing, whatever it might be. What are some steps one can take if they're, if that is what is holding them back? Well, you know, like I said earlier, that perfectionism is the death of action. And you literally can overthink it to the point where you don't think you're good enough to do something. And so you really just have to take the first step. And I think the biggest thing that anyone can do is be consistent, right? So showing up consistently and just, you know, just getting that trial and error in, in like a very, um, I I almost said low dose. I'm a doctor (laughs) in a low dose way. And and it's true. You know, if, if I'm prescribing a new medication, for instance, I go, I go low and slow. I always say that you go low dose and you go slowly to, you know, you don't know how someone's going to react. And I do that with uh, strength training. I've been weightlifting now for about a year and a half. And before that I would do, you know, I throw some dumbbells in, try to, you know, tone up or whatever. But now I'm like seriously into trying to build strength. And I always tell people the same thing, go low and slow. But the key is is showing up and being consistent because what people do is they go fast out of the gate, they freak themselves out or they have a failure and then they just quit. And if you go low and slow and you keep going and the stakes are actually low for you, if it's something new you're trying... I don't think it is actually useful or helpful for a lot of people to like have that experience of going viral. You know, like if you're trying something new and you're putting yourself out there online, going viral can be super stressful because you may not have the chops under you or the experience under you, or you may not, you know, and then suddenly you have like all these people all over your ass, right? Yeah. Like when I started on the air, it started, no one was listening. Yeah. It just slowly built over And, and you worked on yeah. being able to hone your craft. Mm-hmm, that helped. But showing up and doing it consistently is the biggest thing. All right. Consistency. Is the biggest thing. It is consistency is queen. And I, and I mean that, like just keep showing up. And, and I always, anything new I'm trying to build, I usually schedule like two hours in my week 
of working on whatever the new thing is, like whatever new uh, program I'm going to start for, you know, my medical practice or something I'm thinking of in my life that may be future down the road. I book two hours every week where that's all I do. I just kind of, it's kind of like vision boarding kind of stuff and planning and thinking and just putting some time into it. I don't think people put the time into it. Okay. So consistency is good. What do you do when the first hate comes in? The first... Bless and block. Uh, I love that. Amy taught me that. <laughs> you, you learned it somewhere and then, and then she'd bless and block. Bless and block. Because it's going to probably come on social media. Yeah. Um, and it's your social media. There's no rules. It could also, you know, unfortunately, whenever yeah. you're doing something new, um, sometimes where it comes from is your closest family and friends. Oh, yeah. And right. sometimes where it comes from is your colleagues. So if you buck the trend of something and you do something new and you're putting yourself out there, it's almost like, you know, we talk about this in a trauma bond. It's not necessarily a trauma bond, but, you know, the crabs in the pail are like trying to climb up. And then if one is about to get out, the other crabs will pull it down. It's fucked up, man. It's totally fucked up. And <laughs> it's this crabs, weird, man. I think it's a weird instinct that kicks in. It's almost like sometimes the people closest to you want you to fail because if you succeed, then again, they're making it about themselves, right? They're only thinking about themselves. Like, oh, maybe I should be doing something I'm not doing, right? Yeah. And and people want you to fail. Now just picture the crabs. That'll make you that'll make you move forward every time. I keep forgetting that one. I'm you know, gonna remember that. I'm I've told this story before, uh, but I think it got cut in yeah. one of our edits. <laughs> Can you see if it makes it this time? Yeah. I had a patient who um was a smoker and who had lung cancer and he was still smoking and we had this conversation about it and it wasn't like a shame conversation. I just asked him, I was curious, like, why are you still smoking? And he said, well, because my friends make fun of me every time I try to quit. And I'm like, holy fucking shit, dude, your friends suck. Yeah. Like you have lung cancer. They should just be, they should be doing everything they can to support you. And, and by the way, uh, if your friends and family are doing everything they can to support you, get new friends and family. Yeah. <laughs> I guess get new friends and and uh, choose your family. Yeah, yeah, that's really good advice. You know, yeah, yeah. you should be happy for people. Yeah, you should love people to win. Yeah, you should want nothing more than people to really find their truest selves. Yeah, and to tap into that. And even if they start doing all this weird shit and trying new things, and great, see how they react. You know, really take, yeah. yeah, really look around and see which people are happy for you. I know those people in my life because I've, all the others are out of my life. Sometimes it comes with age as we yeah, age. That's we're, exactly we're more, we're more secure in our own skin and then we're more willing to be supportive of other <laughs> people. Just, but yeah. it's not always that. I'm just not putting over that shit anymore. <laughs> like no, I don't, oh, I'm not. I do not have the, I don't have it in me. It's not in me. I can't even be around people who are super negative anymore. Oh no. Like uh -uh. who just cr like criticize people or, or just just all the time are being negative and and same on my getting back to feedback like when people write me and i get that on the air i get it in my every once in a while and i just for now on i'm just sort of i don't try to convince them otherwise i just you, you just have to send them a prayer of loving compassion well, that's in the form <laughs> and of then bless and block bless and block
was Nation of Language, another song from that great New York band. Make sure to find them on their Bandcamp page and look for their forthcoming record called A Way Forward. Amy, um, before we say goodbye to everybody, too, I just want to make sure everybody knows that um, this podcast was recorded under duress um, and and exhaustion. Uh, My wife uh, went to a bouncy house uh, in Kirkland for uh, for two or three hours today. Kirkland's far from... West Seattle. Our hub here in West Seattle, especially with... Especially, you know, y'all know about the... Y'all know the, about the bridge. The bridge. <laughs> y'all know about that. Um, she, uh, God bless her, went to a, a birthday party, you know, had to put the masks on, and you were indoors in a neon bouncy house for... Hours. <laughs> two or three hours. Um, but also, uh, we're vegan. And in, in, in a lot of cases, there's nothing for us to eat. And that, that happens. We don't... Oh, and you know what, Henry and, and I had a conversation about it before yeah, we so even good. got there. Like, you know what, though? It's probably going to be pepperoni yeah. pizza. and It was. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just want to say, um, they got home, and I look in this uh, this bag that Amy has brought home, and she has brought home, they stopped and got a piece of chocolate cake, and she ordered a couple of pizza. Shout out to Mod Pizza. She ordered a couple of vegan pizzas from Mod Pizza. And I just want to give you a pat on the back and then came in here and did this podcast today. That is not easy. <laughs> so if you're out there thinking you can't get things done or you're failing as a parent or whatever, you have you have your good days. And uh, I think you just had one. So good job. Oh, thanks. All right. That about does it for us here at The Doctor and The DJ. Thank you so much for listening. Tell everyone you know about The Doctor and the DJ. You can find us on Instagram again, the doctor and the DJ. You can reach us there directly. Big thanks to our friends over at Ruinous Media for making us sound good and helping us put this podcast together. A big thank you to the band Nation of Language as well. And a big thank you to Flying Apron who's joined us as a sponsor. They are our go-to here in Seattle. We love them. Bakery, cafe, and some of the best coffee I have had, I swear to God, the other day. Ever. They are uh, amazing people. They have a huge variety of certified gluten-free, plant-based, sweet and savory goods. And if you go there, just mention the doctor and the DJ and you get a discount. I'm not going to lie. I did that and got a discount. It was pretty sweet. So again, thank you, Flying Apron. We appreciate you. Okay, that's enough talking. We'll be back soon. Here's National Language and Wounds of Love.